I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the green notebook of Todd Henry. Todd is the author of one of my favorite leadership books, Hurting Tigers, Be the Leader That Creative People Need. And he's also written several more to include The Accidental Creative and Die Empty, which are both amazing books. In this episode, Todd and I discuss the role that leaders play in organizations and some of the challenges people face when moving from a position of being a player on the team to being the leader of a team. And Todd provides some great practical advice for those who want to lead teams where everyone brings their best self to work every day. Now, this is one of our shorter interviews. However, it is packed full of Todd's wisdom. So please welcome to the show, Todd Henry. It's great to be here. Todd, thank you so much for making time today. One of the books that I call a highlighter killer is your book, Hurting Tigers, which uh, I read a few years ago and I continually go back and reference time and time again. I think I went through two or three highlighters in that book because it was just it was just packed full of so much great information and it was both practical and tactical two things that that I know that you're constantly hitting on when it comes to leadership. So the first question that I have to ask is what are some of the challenges you see leaders face when they move from the person being the worker bee, the person doing all the work to being in charge of a team that's responsible for doing the work? Yeah, I think probably the biggest struggle that I see is that when you are for your entire career basically rewarded for how well you get the work done and how well you control the work, you have a task to do and you do that task really well, and then you get rewarded for it, that develops a mindset in you over the course of your career that basically whispers in your ear that if you want to be rewarded, if you want to continue to advance, you need to make sure that the work is what it needs to be which is true on a macro sense. But the problem is when you transition from being a frontline worker to leading frontline workers, your job is no longer to do the work. Your job is to lead the work. And that's a fundamentally different skill set and mindset. 
that's required to lead the work versus doing the work. And so a lot of leaders slip into a mindset of control where they are perpetually looking over people's shoulders, telling them not just how to think about the work, but specifically what to do in certain circumstances. And when that happens, as you can imagine, really smart, talented people shut their brains off. They don't think for themselves. They just say, well, I'm just going to wait until you tell me what to do, because why would I put all the energy into doing something when I know you're just going to come and tell me what to do anyway? And so the biggest transition we need to make when we move from maker to manager, from frontline executioner to leader of people who are executing, executioner, that's probably not the right way to put that. You could be an executioner. I mean, that would... uh... (laughs) Let's say that you're operating a guillotine and then you're suddenly leading a group of people who are leading... No. Um, Yeah. So the biggest biggest thing we have to really struggle with is, is, I think, making sure we're not slipping into a mindset of control, but instead we're leading with influence and removing ourselves. And by doing that, I'm sorry, I'll keep going on. You may have a follow-up question, but by doing this, what we do is we ensure that the people on our team are taught not just what to do in a specific circumstance, which can be helpful now, but instead we're teaching them how to think about the work. We're giving them the ability to develop their own ways of approaching problems, which is only going to amplify and multiply our impact as a leader over time. And I think some people listening to this will struggle. And as they hear you speak, they're thinking, well, you're just talking about, you know, having an office of free range chickens, but like, that's not the case at all, is it? No, no, not at all. And listen, the work has to be right. So I'm not discounting the fact that you have to get it right. You know, in some circumstances, depending on what environment you're leading in, the consequences could be life or death. You know, like literally if you're in the military, obviously it's life or death. If you're leading a surgical group, the consequences could be life or death. So I'm not discounting that things have to be right. What I'm saying is that when you come in and control the work by looking over people's shoulder, telling them what to do all the time, not just what to do, but how to do it, talented people will will shut their brain off. They will over time. What you want to do is develop the capacity in people to not just accomplish the work, but to understand why those tactics work. And this is a big gap that exists in a lot of organizations I work with. People understand what works, but they don't understand why it works. And if you don't understand why something works, then over time, your organization is going to fail as it encounters new kinds of uncertainty, new kinds of work that they've never encountered before because people haven't been trained, not just what tactics work, but why those tactics work. That's a big reason why this control thing is so important. It may not be important in the moment. The effects begin to reveal themselves over seasons when your team encounters new kinds of circumstances. And instead of being able to deal with those circumstances, they need you to step in and tell them what to do because they've never been trained how to think about the work and confront those uncertainties for themselves. So as a leader, one of the approaches that you talk about in that book is that leaders provide their, you know, the people that work for them with, I believe it was uh, focus function and fire. Could you yeah. talk about those three and, and why those matter in, in leading teams of people or as far as, you know, teaching them why they need to be doing what they're doing? Yeah. So those are the, the three Fs is what I call them in the book. And focus is really about two things. Number one, what are we working on right now? Or what are we focusing on right now? Allocating your team's finite attention is really important. There are any number of problems your team could allocate its attention to. So it's important as a leader that you tell your team, listen, this is where I want you spending your finite mental cycles right now. And equally as importantly, here's what I want you not focusing on right now. 
And this is really important, especially among young people in the workforce. I'm finding that they are, man, I mean, some of the the young people in the workforce entering the workforce now are some of the hardest working people you ever want to meet when they want to do the work, when it's work that interests them, right? And one thing that a lot of organizations struggle with, that the managers that I talk to, they'll say, people will work around the clock for days on end to do something that is nominally important to the outcome of the organization. But when it comes to the thing they really need to be focused on, you know, they give it passing attention because this other project is something they're really interested in. So it's not that they don't want to work. It's just that maybe they don't understand how to allocate their attention effectively. So as a leader, we have to teach our team both. Here's what you should be focusing on. Here are the problems we're solving, the outcomes we're driving toward, and here's what you should not be focusing on. Function is really about your systems, your processes. It's the how of the work. How is the work going to get done? Your job is to make sure that those systems are irreducibly complex, meaning we're going to develop the quickest path to get where we want to be with the least amount of friction that we can have in order to accomplish what we want to accomplish. The work itself is uncertain. So we want to make sure there's not uncertainty, unnecessary complexity, et cetera, in our processes. So how do we make our our processes irreducibly complex? And then FIRE really is about helping your team understand its productive passion and the why behind their work. Why are you doing what you do? What is it that drives you? What are you spending yourself on behalf of? What is the outcome that we're really committed to? And making sure that your team is living inside of a story that makes sense and that animates the team. That isn't just some placard that you put on the wall, some mission statement that really you know, is kind of irrelevant to most people's everyday life. And a lot of organizations I encounter are that way. They have this really fancy sounding mission statement, but nobody really thinks about that when they go about their work, right? So how do you instill that sense of productive passion in your team every day? So that's focus, function, fire. What do we focus on? What do we not? How can we make our systems irreducibly complex so that we're not creating needless complexity for our team? And then how do we help them connect with a productive passion that animates them every day? Yeah, some of the best leaders I've worked for, Todd, have you know been able to focus on culture and process at the same exact time. Yeah. And we found that they two just continue to feed each other and always prioritizing what's important. One of the biggest pitfalls I've seen a lot of folks fall into is everything's important. Yeah. And uh, and that's like that's literally impossible. And so, you know, some of the best leaders I've seen have said ruthlessly prioritize what needs to be done. And then on top of that, if as somebody who's doing the task, if you can't complete something because you know there's too much going on, is you know, speaking truth to power back up, saying, Hey, we're not gonna be able to accomplish this because of X, Y, and Z. Here's the risk of doing this versus doing this. So, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's that two-way street there. Absolutely. And this could have different implications in a military context. So, you know, apply this with extreme caution. But one of the bravest things that leaders do is to say no, right? It's to say, wait a minute, we cannot do this. We physically cannot do this with the resources we have right now. Now we can reprioritize if you want. That's great. If you want me to reprioritize our and reallocate our resources so that we can make this our top priority, absolutely. I'm, you know, I'm all about that. But we physically cannot do what you're asking us to do with the resources that we have right now. One of my my friends, Ricardo Crespo, used to be the global creative chief at 20th Century Fox. And he told me one of his favorite techniques when somebody, you know, one of his bosses would come to him and say, okay, this is something we really need you to do. We need you to do this. He was like, great. I would love to do it. Which of these other very high priority projects would you like me to put on the back burner so that I could take this on, right? So you sort of put it back on the other person and make them help you prioritize which 
you know, can feel a little backhanded if not done the right way, but I think it communicates the right message, which is we have finite resources and we're not just being lazy here. We're doing good work, but you know, part of the act of leadership is the act of saying no, of saying we have to choose where we're going to allocate those resources in order to be effective. We can be mediocre at a lot of things, or we can be really effective at a select group of things. So we have to choose which ones we're going to focus on. And I know you caveated that with kind of like a don't try to sit home before you said it. But really, again, going back to what I've seen in the military with a lot of the people I've worked for is the best leaders do say no, hmm. but they don't do it emotionally. They lay out the risk of here's what's not going to get accomplished if we do this. And they like, they're very good at articulating that and not just a very emotional, like it's too hard. We've got this, this, and this. They're able to back it up with data, be able to back it up with facts and be able to communicate in a way that makes sense to their higher headquarters. So I, yeah, I think that's, that's something that more of us need to be doing is saying no when it's appropriate. And I think that's a great caveat that you just issued. You know, one of the things I always tell leaders in the marketplace is you have to be able to make a business case for any decision that you make. And it's exactly what you're just describing. Here are the resources we have. Here are the consequences of me doing what you want me to do, right? I just want to make sure you understand what the consequences are going to be. Here's what's going to happen you know, to our team. Here's what we're not going to be able to accomplish as effectively as we need to. And so you know, making that business case and articulating it well, as you said, is critical to ensuring A, that your team is going to be effective, but B, making sure that you don't go through cycles of burnout, which so many teams do, because I don't know how to break it to anyone, but expectations are only going up. You know, they're not going down. There isn't somebody sitting around thinking, how can we relieve the pressure on the organization? I mean, they're, they're just trying to figure out how to get more out of what we have, which is understandable. It's what organizations do. That's why we require brave leaders to stand in the gap and make decisions on behalf of their team. As you're talking, what you're talking about, and you mentioned this on this podcast, which real quick plug for Todd's podcast, especially around this book, he's got a couple, but specifically Herding Tigers, they're great 12-minute episodes that draw out different lessons from the book. But one of those that you point out in the podcast was that you know, a lot of times leaders, we think we're on the top of the organization, but we're not. We're in the middle. You know, We have the people below us and the people above us. And it's a tension that we have to manage being in charge of our own organization. That's right. Yeah. And every, by the way, every leader, I don't care where you are in the organizational chart, every leader is in the middle. Even the CEO of an organization reports to the board. The board reports to the shareholders, right? Everyone reports to someone in an organization. So that's what we have to be mindful of is our responsibility is not just to manage down, but also to manage up. We have to make certain that we're having strategic conversations with our manager to A, protect our team and clear a path for our team, but also B, to make sure that we're speaking our strategic voice into the decisions that are being made because there are decisions that cannot be made without the input of people who see things clearly on the ground, right? Like we need that information going back upstream within an organization. If we don't have it, people are going to be making decisions based upon assumptions that may prove to be invalid, which can be deadly to any organization. I'm getting excited. I, this is another interview where I sent you a list of questions and then we, we just threw those out. <laughs> Let's go for it. As you were talking, right? It's like information at the ground level is like a rock, you know, like a jagged, sharp rock. And as it moves up the organization, it's like a river, like the water just slowly softens it down. And then by the time it gets up to, 
you know, the people at the highest levels of the organization. It's just this polished, shining piece of gem, you know, when that's not the reality at all. And so that's one of the lessons I, that I think I've learned over the course of my military career is the importance of, of speaking truth to power and not, you know, shining the rock as it's moving up the communication stream of the organization. Yeah, because we want to make things as easy to communicate as possible, which I think is part of what contributes to that that polishing of the rock, right? The rounding off of the rough edges. Part of it is I want to position it so that it makes me look good. That's certainly part of it, right? But part of it, I think also is just, it's like the game of telephone, right? Where you whisper something and the next person, the next person. Well, by the time it gets to the final person, they might have some semblance of what was originally said, but it's, you know, it's been sort of adapted and changed depending on the perspective of the person hearing it. So the more chains of communication exists between you know, the decision maker and the frontline person who originated that piece of information, the more likely you're going to be making information based upon faulty data, or at least a false perception of that data or a false assumption. Every person in that chain is making an assumption about what that data means. And then they're communicating it based upon that assumption rather than communicating the raw data up the chain. So I think that's a really important observation that you make that part of our role as a leader is to confront brutal reality, regardless of what it says about us. We do nobody any favors by ignoring the brutal reality of the situation. And in fact, it might be dangerous to do so You know, in the business world. Hey folks, it's Joe here. And I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you were looking for an education, this is a place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. I know for me personally, like as I look back on it, a lot of times I personalize everything that happens within my formation, within my my organization. And so even though something may have happened that I had nothing to do with, you know, as I'm reporting up, there is that that tendency to like change a word here, change a word there, to just soften the blow a little bit as it, it travels up. But that's a that's a good challenge, you know, just for myself, Todd, is pass the rock up as it is. And, uh, <laughs> and don't uh, polish it. That's um, part of accountability too, right? Yeah. So again, how we communicate externally can be very different from how we communicate internally. Internally, we should communicate with brutal reality, brutal honesty, because that's the only way we're going to get better. Now, how we communicate externally can be very different. You know, how a company communicates to the public can be a reflection of reality, whatever reflection best serves the organization, you know, but Internally, we don't serve anyone by doing that, by polishing the rock, because if we're not willing to deal with, to confront the facts as they are, the facts are going to eat us alive (laughs) one way or the other. So we have to be very, very careful about that. Yeah. I just, I just asked Todd, if we just agree right now that like, if you think that was really smart and you want to use that in your next book, if you could just throw (laughs) my, 
throw my name next to it. It will, you know, it's uh, interesting. I, come to think of it, I am working on a book concept right now where that might be useful. So I might actually, uh, I might actually come to you for that. That's right. All right. Well, we have it. We have it in, in on a recording. <laughs> what are the things? Other things did you talk about in herding tigers? Was the difference between scoreboards and dashboards? Could you talk about both of those and why those matter for leaders and, and for organizations? Yeah. So a lot of organizations only measure according to what I would call the scoreboard. You know, did we win? Did we put points on the board? Were we successful? And that's fine, but those are trailing indicators. They don't tell you whether your process in getting there was effective. It only tells you that the ultimate outcome was effective in some capacity. If we don't have leading indicators, in other words, a dashboard, then our organization can get off track to the point that eventually our Team members struggle, they, they burn out, we lose people you know, over time if we're not careful. So leading indicators are like a dashboard on a car. You know, if you're not monitoring your gas tank, if you're not monitoring your, you know, the heat, you know, the, the temperature gauge, you know, if the check engine lights on and you just keep driving anyway, you know, there are any number of things on your dashboard that can warn you ahead of time that something bad is about to happen. You're going to run out of gas, your car is going to overheat something. And so we need to figure out as leaders, what are those dashboard items that we should be monitoring? For example, is there a lot of seemingly unnecessary tension on the team right now? You know, that would be one example. Um, are people just snipping at each other in meetings in a way that I've not really seen before? And what might that say about what's going on on the team right now? Are people perpetually coming into meetings five minutes late. Okay. Well, that's a cultural issue that I need to monitor because what we're really communicating is we don't, we don't value everyone's time. And so sooner or later, that's going to come back to bite us in some way. You know, are we struggling to come up with ideas right now? Maybe we're taking on too much. Maybe we simply don't have the bandwidth to do what we're doing. Again, that's a leading indicator that could lead to a trailing indicator or a scoreboard that shows us with too few points on the board, ultimately. But we could have known that ahead of time had we been monitoring some of these dashboard items. So that's really what I'm talking about is making sure that you have a couple of key metrics that you're monitoring as a leader. You're paying attention to what's going on in your process to help you understand whether you're operating and functioning properly or if maybe something could be askew on the team. And I appreciate that you were talking about the dashboard in terms of like human dynamics and not, you know, a lot of times like we have a lot of dashboards in the military, communications equipment, maintenance, you know, whatever. But one of the things that I don't think that we do well enough is pay attention to those small things like you're talking about that eventually lead to, you know, a lot of severe incidents. Yeah. And, and usually they are, to your point, they're usually cultural things, right? And it, again, it could be something like I'm noticing a lot of people gossiping, you know, a lot of people talking about other people behind their back or a lack of respect for their boss's boss or, you know, something like that. It could be little things like that, that you begin to notice and you realize I need to monitor this and make sure this isn't becoming a thing because this could lead to cultural erosion over time. Well, as um, I'm looking at the clock here, Todd, and hopefully we can do this again because there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot more I want to ask. You know, a lot of stuff that we've been talking about is, you know, speaking truth to power as you go up. And one of the, the things that you talk about is, is the importance of relationships for leaders. And you talk about, specifically, you talk about like two important relationships leaders should have as they, as they move up the ladder of the organization. I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about those before we run out of time today. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So 
the first thing that we need in our life is we need a mirror. We need somebody who can reflect back to us what they see. This is really important to seek out before you realize you need it. I was actually speaking um, at Air University uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, a couple of years ago. And one of the other speakers was uh, actually General George Casey, who was, I think he had, he had retired by that point. He, was, he came in to, to speak about leadership. And, um, you know, obviously a very, you know, he's an unbelievable person and, you know, deeply respected person. And so I'm in the green room and I think I'm eating like a blueberry muffin or something. And I turn around and here's General Casey standing right in front of me. And as you can imagine, you know, I, if you've ever had a general stand in front of you, which I'm sure you have, right? It's like, it's a little, it's a little intimidating, right? In that moment. And uh, I think I probably spit blueberry muffin all over the place anyway. <laughs> um, so he asked me what's the most important thing I should know about creativity. Cause that was what I was there to talk about that day. And I can't even remember what I said, but I did have the presence of mind to ask, what do you think is the most important thing I should know about leadership? And without even batting an eye without thinking twice. He said, you need people in your life to speak truth to you before you realize you need people in your life to speak truth to you. And I thought, boy, that is so profound, right? The idea that by the time we realize we need people to speak truth to us, it's probably too late to find them because we're probably already at a point in our career where we're going to be surrounded by people whose own careers are better served by telling us what they think we want to hear than by what reality actually is. And so the time to start seeking those people in your life is right now. The time to start building those relationships is right now. Who will tell you when you have spinach in your teeth? Who will tell you when you're not being yourself? Who will tell you when you're behaving in a way that's contrary to what you say you value? Who will tell you when you're expecting too much? Who will tell you when you're expecting too little? Who will tell you when you're not being confident enough? Who will tell you when you're being a little overly arrogant? You need people in your life who will step up and say, hey, here's what I'm saying. Now, here's the important thing. You need to invite that kind of feedback from those people, right? That's number one. You can't expect people to take the initiative on their own. Some people will. Number two, if you are one of those people, you need to make certain that you've been invited to be that person for someone else. Uh, don't just go up to someone and start offering them feedback if they've never solicited it from you in any capacity. But we need that. We need that. Everyone needs that in their life. One great question to ask, by the way, of someone that you trust is, what's something obvious that I'm not seeing right now? That's a fantastic question to ask. Because people around you have opinions about things they're seeing that they think you're overlooking, and you'll often miss those because you know, because you haven't invited their, their perspective. So we need mirrors, but we also need circles in our life. A circle is a group of people who keep us inspired, engaged, focused. Um, it's a group of, I typically recommend four to six people. You get together once a month and you ask three questions. Number one, what are you working on right now? So what kind of problems are you solving? Like, what are you experiencing? What's occupying your mind in your days right now? Number two, is there anything we can help you with? So sometimes, you know, we just need help with a specific problem we're trying to solve. It could be personal, it could be professional, but what can we help you with? Let's do a, a little bit of quick problem solving right here and just throw out some resources. And number three, and I think this is maybe the most important question is what's inspiring you right now? What are you seeing? What are you noticing? What are you reading? What's fueling your engines? What's firing you up? And then talk about how those apply to your work. So have a conversation about that. What happens when we have these conversations is that we broaden our base of stimulus. We broaden our base of experience. We're allowing the experiences of other people to fuel our own process. And so it becomes really important for us as leaders 
to have these relationships in our life. Leadership is only lonely if you're doing it wrong. You know, we've heard that phrase before, leadership is lonely. Well, it's only lonely if you're doing it wrong. If you're inviting people into your life to speak into your life and to be a part of that leadership with you, then it doesn't have to be lonely. It is going to be lonely in the sense that, you know, I like to say leadership is like uh, living in a fishbowl in the middle of a firing range, right? Everybody can see what you're doing at all times. They feel free to take a shot whenever they want, which is largely true. So it is lonely in that sense, but you don't have to be in the fishbowl alone, I guess is my point. You can invite other people to be in there with you. Yeah. And that's, you know, another thing that I've picked up working for, you know, just some phenomenal leaders over the course of my army career is that they do, they surround themselves, not with people who are just like them, but people who think differently than them, people who are also going to be the people that speak up and say, Hey, your collar's messed up, or you got gum on your, on the side of your lip before you go into a meeting. Because yeah, like nobody, nobody wants that. And then, you know, even the team from the green notebook is uh, one of the things I love is that it's just this free flowing sense of if there's something that's off, something that I'm doing that that's not right. Numerous people will quickly speak up and point out, and then we'll we'll move in a different direction. But if I didn't have that, you and I probably wouldn't be talking right now because this thing would have have tanked a couple of years ago. That's great. As we close down, one last question, and and you talk a little bit about in the book too, is like leaders staying inspired. How would you suggest as, as leaders move through the ranks, they continue to keep their edge sharp? Besides having the circles and having the the people that can reflect their weaknesses. Yeah. So the single greatest practice, most effective practice that I've built into my life is having a daily practice of study, building some time into your life every day. For me, it's the very first thing in the morning. I go to the kitchen, I make some coffee, make my very simple breakfast. I go to my home office and I sit and I study for an hour. And that's been my practice for almost 20 years now really since my mid-20s, actually more than 20 years, since my mid-20s, I've been doing this. And the reason that's been so important is that it pushes me to see the world through different lenses. It allows me to have insight into how other people think. It allows me to pursue topics that I'm curious about that I'm never otherwise going to have the opportunity to pursue. And allows me to think systemically, to connect dots that are outside of my, my domain and to offer advice based upon not just what I see in front of me, but based upon what other people maybe have experienced over time, based upon other domains, other disciplines that I may not be as familiar with in my own experience, but I can study them. I can read about them, read about the insights of others and apply those insights to my clients or to the work that I'm doing. So I would encourage people, if you don't have that in your life, and and by the way, it may not be first thing in the morning for you. It might be at lunch. It might be in the evening, but have some time every day where you, you study. And by the way, that doesn't mean go down and buy a trigonometry textbook or something. You can listen to podcasts like this one, uh, be a great way to do that and, and hear all kinds of insights from people around the world. You can listen to audiobooks. You can take a walk. It's part of my routine. I take a walk in the middle of the day every day. And I usually listen to an audio book while I'm doing it. So I get a little extra reading in, in the middle of the day. I mean, there are any number of ways you can do it, but I just encourage you to have some way that you are filling your mind with valuable stimulus. Steve Jobs once quipped that creativity is connecting things. And that's largely true, but you have to have dots to connect, right? You need to have those patterns in your head to connect if you want to synthesize and think systemically. I love that that's your routine. That's that's my routine. And I, I just recently switched from a job where I wasn't required to get up that early to a job where I have to leave the house every morning at five. So mm-hmm. I've started waking up at 4.15 to do that for 45 minutes every morning. So I, get, I do the same thing. I get a cup of coffee. 
I sit down, open some books, highlight, take notes, and just get 45 minutes a day. And I, I think one of the things that, that I've learned is that people think that, oh, like, how do you, you know, they, they don't know where you find time to read. But if you add up all that time over the course of a week or a couple of weeks, like all of a sudden you're knocking down books one after the other, just those small investments. And it's a great way to start your day. For me, like if I don't do that, if I wake up late, I'm just not centered as I move into my day. Yeah, for sure. I noticed that as well. I mean, they're like when I'm traveling or if on the occasion I have a, like a really early morning meeting or something, I'm just not, I'm not the same the rest of the day, right? Like it just is a great way to start your day and to, and to kick it off in the right mindset and the right frame of mind, for sure. Do you, um, I guess this last question, then we'll do the, uh, if people want to want to find you, reflection. That's another thing that I've added at the end of my day. So that if the start of my day is reading and just kind of thinking, writing some stuff down, that the end cap of my day is a brief like 20 minute reflection, looking back on my day and just kind of, I write it out, you know, just kind of what I face today. Do you have something similar? I do. I actually have a daily plan sheet that I use every single day. Um, and it has a little module for reflection at the end of the day. And just thinking about things that I did that day, things I did well, maybe some low points, you know, what, what are some things I can learn about some of the low points that day? Were there ways in which I fell into unhealthy patterns, which happens you know, unconsciously, you're not even thinking about it. You just you know, slip into a pattern and, you know, suddenly here you are, you waste an hour, you know, answering email when you should have been focused on something else or whatever. So, you know, it's just a good way to, you know, do an after action review, right. To, uh, to determine whether or not you spent your energy and your time in the right way that day. So absolutely. I completely agree. As a matter of fact, I just had a conversation with Dr. Nate Zenser from West Point. It's an interview that's going to be coming out soon on the podcast. And he talked about the importance when you're building confidence the importance of looking back on your day and identifying places where you put good effort into something. So what kind of effort did you put into something today where you had success that day? And then well, I'm trying to think of what the third one was. I wrote it down. I've got it right here because we just had the interview. So it was effort, oh, effort, success, and progress. What did I make progress on today? And he said, you know, by recording these things consistently, you build a well, a mental bank account of successes that you can then go back and review. And it sort of helps you carry momentum forward into the future. And, and I love that. It's a similar concept. You know, it's that sort of end of day review kind of thing. I actually, I added one more thing a couple of weeks ago. I read an essay written by Peter Drucker for Harvard Business Review. And he talks about, I think he did it for like 40 years. He would write down key decisions he made that day. Hmm. And then he could go back a couple of months later and look back and be like, oh, I'm a horrible decision maker. Or, you know, like, no. I, I see, I make I make bad decisions when I'm emotional because I was clearly emotional that day. And so that's yeah. something that I've started adding too. And then hopefully as I, as I go down the, uh, you know, the road and look back, I'm a better decision maker, which then, you know, feeds that confidence moving forward. I actually started tracking as well the number of creative hours that I spend every day. This is something I got from Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great and a bunch of other books, but he once said that the biggest leading indicator for him of his work is the number of deep creative hours that he spends every day doing work that is going to advance his big project, whatever he's working on. And so I started tracking that as well because I thought, well, that's, a, you know, there are days when I have meetings all day and I don't spend any time doing deep creative work. Well, if too many of those creep into my schedule, that next book isn't going to get done or the next big project isn't going to get you know accomplished. So um, I thought that was a really nice 
thing to track as well. And it's been very helpful. Yeah, that's a great way to have a personal dashboard for yourself. Because like, like, like you said, you know, the scoreboards, there's either, either going to be a book or there won't be. Um, right. And so you can monitor. And, and I, yeah, I look, at, I look at fitness and I look at a couple other different things that I write down as well. I, that's awesome, Todd, that, that you do that. No wonder you're, you know, so successful. <laughs> I tell people I don't have disciplines because I'm disciplined. I have disciplines because I'm undisciplined, right? Disciplines don't make you disciplined. Disciplines are for people who are fundamentally undisciplined to keep them in a place of discipline. All discipline is at the end of the day is making an agreement with yourself and keeping it. That's all it is, you know, and, and we tend to think some people are disciplined, some people aren't. The reality is if you make an agreement and you keep it, great. Congratulations, you're disciplined. I don't care how small the agreement is, right? The key is to learn to make the right agreements with yourself over time that are going to move you forward. That's a great way of, of looking at it. And as you say that, then I can say that I'm a total undisciplined mess and that without these, I would be all over the place right now. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for pointing that out. Okay, Todd, I know your time's running short. If listeners to this episode want to learn more about you, where can they find you? So two places, um, accidentalcreative.com is my company and that's where the podcast is. And we have books and all kinds of resources there. So if you want to check that out, you can, some courses and other things. Um, my personal site is toddhenry.com, T-O-D-D-H-E-N-R-Y.com. That's where you'll learn more about me and my speaking and some of the other things I do. Well, Todd, thank you so much uh, for your time today. This was, this was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about uh, herding tigers. Thank you. And thanks for all the great work you do. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world, you can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud, desert on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the love. Shoot me down soon